Have you ever made a bad decision that led to a series of more bad decisions? This is the essential plot for many books and movies for a reason. It's relatable. Almost every horror film, if you, if you like those types of movies, follows this rubric, a bad decision that gets worse and worse as it goes. Sometimes one decision sets in motion a pragmatism that only ends badly. And we, in our sin, want to hide and cover even when it leads to more sin and more trouble. So as we come to our passage, I want you to keep an eye out for the ways in which a sinful pragmatism is used. Our passage today comes from 2 Samuel 14, which is an extensive narrative and not as familiar as other narratives. So we'll read through it and get it in front of us. 2 Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom, and Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king, and on my father's house. Let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to the Lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. And as much as the king does not bring his banished one home again, we must all die. We are all like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of the Lord the king will set me at rest. For the Lord the king is like an angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, let my lord the king speak. 
The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab Joab, who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all things that are on the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, in that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it, when it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, two hundred shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask. Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be there still. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would pour out your spirit, that we would understand these words um, and understand them unto life unto salvation, that you would work in us good works and faith uh, unto Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were making molasses cookies and were all ready to go, and then you went into your pantry and found that you did not have any molasses, then you would have to go to the grocery store to get more molasses. It might be a somewhat deflating task, but it's just a necessary fact that you have to have molasses to make molasses cookies. There is a similar situation today with the translation of the first part of our passage. It may be kind of deflating, but nonetheless necessary to deal with this translation issue. Various translations give a different impression of the last of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14. So if you have uh, the ESV, in 1339 it says, "...the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom." And in 14.1, it says, the king's heart went out to Absalom. I think that's most likely a wrong impression that it leaves there. Look at the verb in 13.39, 
where it says he longed to go out. It can be translated that way, to long for something, but it is more often the idea of coming to an end, to be finished, to be used up, maybe even to be destroyed. So the idea in 1339 is more something like the king's desire for marching out against Absalom was used up. He just didn't have the enthusiasm to bring Absalom to task anymore. And then in 14.1, there is no verb in the first part of verse 1. You have to supply it. So, of course, the ESV has the king's uh, heart went out to Absalom. It's literally the heart of the king was either upon Absalom or against Absalom. And I think it's probably the latter. The king's heart was against Absalom. So far from longing for Absalom, he is anti-Absalom. His heart is against Absalom. I think that's probably correct because in verse 24, if you uh, look there, when Absalom is brought back to Jerusalem, David says he can go back to his house, but he's not going to see my face. So you get a sense that David is against Absalom. It's not like David was all cuddly and warm and fuzzy over Absalom. Now he is in chapter 18 more so, but here he's not. He seems to be keeping him at a distance. So I tend to think that verse 1 should be taken as the king's heart being against Absalom. That seems to make sense with Joab uh, going through the scheme of getting this woman into Koah in order to soften up David and bring Absalom back. If David was really longing to go out and get Absalom back, as the ESV seems to imply, why would Joab have to resort to the woman of Tekoa and go to all that trouble? So that's the necessary detail to give you a different viewpoint from what some translations give. Now there's a larger problem we run into in chapter 14 than missing molasses, a bigger issue than an interpretive translation issue. Why does this account happen here in this narrative? Is it just to report about how Absalom got back to Israel? Is that all it is? Or to quote the esteemed theologian Paul, is this for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness? And if that's the reason this passage is here, what kind of instruction is it? What do we make of this? I want to focus on this. Since the absence of justice leads to sinful pragmatism, we must seek the righteous judge. King David messes up here not by, require, uh, by not requiring either repentance from Absalom or punishment. And this leads to a series of troubling events that do not end well. There are several matters which we can examine uh, that will allow this passage to instruct us. And first, I think we can say that David's failure of justice leads to a wisdom that is devious. A wisdom that is devious. Now, Joab here appeals to the woman of Tekoa. Tekoa is a few miles south of Jerusalem. He gets this woman, and she is called a wise woman. The word wise here means she's skillful, she's sharp, and she knows how to get things done. At its core, it's pragmatism. He asks her to go present a case before David, the king of Israel, to get his judgment and Joab tells her everything he wants her to do. In verses 5 through 11, she makes this presentation to David when she comes to plead her concern. She's a widow. She has two sons. They were fighting in a field and quarreling. There was no one around to intervene and stop it. And one struck the other 
with a fatal blow. And now the tribe is clamoring for her to deliver up the surviving son to be turned over for execution because he took the life of his brother. In verse 7, there seems to be the hint of the fact that they have another agenda. If they execute the surviving son, that could possibly free up the inheritance that might be free, uh, free grabs for some of the rest of the tribe. So they may have this hidden agenda as well. And perhaps Joab had put pressure on the king and was trying to get him to bring Absalom back before, but if he could get one of the people to make the argument, that might do the trick. He put her up to this, and she made this presentation. And then, in verses 8 through 11, the king's decision is favorable. It's favorable a decision for her. It's basically, you know, he says, if anyone gives you any trouble, you're to bring them, bring them to me, and I will take care of it. Then, upon her request, he gives, her an, he gives an oath in God's name that not a hair of her son would fall to the ground. So that's the end of it, right? She got a favorable uh, decision, and that's the end. But that's wrong. So notice her technique in verses 12 through 14. She brings up another thing. Now, you know how people are. They will talk about one thing for a good time, and then they'll say, now, I'd just like to bring this other thing up. That's what she's doing here. And the king capitulates. In verses 12 and 13, she essentially says, you've done something like this situation I've just described. My son is in danger, banished from the tribe, and they are seeking his life. You've given permission that he can come back and won't be harmed. But, you know, you're inconsistent, David. You're a hypocrite because you have a son who is banished, and you haven't taken any any measure to bring him back. By doing that, you are really harming the people of God. And then she goes back in verses 15 through 17, after she's mentioned this, just a, just a by the way, she reverts to her own case again. She says, The reason I came to you is that the people around me in my home intimidated me and frightened me. And you can understand that. So she goes back to her own case in verses five or 15 through 17. In verses 12 through 14, so don't miss this. In verses 12 through, uh, through 14, she has this little aside. By the way, let me mention that you are really inconsistent, David. Then she swings back off that so that he doesn't necessarily think that that's the main point, even though it is. I think we can follow that. That's the technique. And you've, seen this for, uh, you've seen this before. For example, let's say my wife receives a phone call uh, from another lady that she knows. She's not necessarily super close to her, uh, but she knows her. And the woman calls and says, I've just been thinking about you. How are you? My wife says she's well and so on. She says, what about, what about Dorothy, your daughter? Uh, didn't she just turn one? How's she doing? And my wife answers that and so on. And then the lady says, Oh, by, by the way, while I'm talking to you, can I borrow that huge bowl you have? Because we're having a little reception for Sally and, and John who are getting married, and we'd like to borrow your huge punch bowl uh, for that. And then she arranges to go and pick it up the next day. You see what she did there? It's not that she's being hypocritical, necessarily, but the punch bowl was really the reason for the call. She says, oh, by the way, while she's talking, though it seems to be a side issue, the bowl is the main reason behind the whole call. Well, that's what the woman from Tekoa is doing in this passage. She makes this point from verses 12, uh, in 12 through 14, look incidental, but it's really the main thrust of what she wants to do. 
David sees through this. In verses 18 and following, he says, tell me the truth. Is Is Joab behind it all? Of course, in verse 19, the woman says, by my life, my lord the king, there is no going to the right or to the left from all that my lord the king has stated, which being translated means yes. But it sounds better. It's a devious wisdom. So Joab is behind it, but the outcome in verse 21 is that David finally caves and tells Joab to bring Absalom back. And the thing I want you to notice is that there is a bit of a problem that she is considered a wise woman. It's problematic. She does her technique well, but there's a problem. There are parallels that she's drawing here. There are two sons that she has, like David, and one was killed. David has two sons, Amnon and Absalom. Absalom murdered Amnon. That's the problem. In each instance, one son was killed and the other is under banishment or exclusion. The life of the killer in the woman's story had a provision to run to a city of refuge and stay there until the case was settled. Both are under banishment for what they had done. So she's drawing on these parallels. And she essentially says to David, just as you have allowed my banished son to come back safely, why should you not bring back your banished son? And it all looks and seems plausible. But there's a problem with plausibility. Something can be plausible but not very convincing. I can work out many plausible things. I have conspiracy theories that I can concoct. One such concocted theory is that there's a conspiracy between academic advisors and the, in the universities that hire them. So it goes like this. You visit your academic advisor faithfully all through college, and you get to your last semester, and your advisor shockingly discovers that there's one extra course you must take to graduate that was not mentioned earlier. So now you have to take a more expensive online course or stay another semester and maybe take some classes to fulfill a minor. And this makes the university more money, and that's plausible, isn't it? It it makes sense in a way. You have a conspiracy. The university say, look, just forget to tell them about this one course, and when they have to take a little extra time, we'll give you a little bonus. Now, I doubt that that is happening, but it's plausible. It makes sense. It's plausible, but it's not cogent. And what I'm trying to get at is that this woman had a plausible case. It looked plausible because it was so parallel with all the little details. But here's the big problem with which we must reconcile. There is something gravely wrong about this whole story. There's a huge difference between unintentional manslaughter, which is what her son committed, and deliberate, premeditated carefully planned murder, which is what Absalom had done. One had certain provisions until the case was decided. Deliberate, calculated murder was a capital offense and called for the justice of execution. They weren't the same kinds of offenses. Unfortunately, David capitulates to this false wisdom. He is the judge who has the responsibility to be just And what I want you to see is that she presents the cases as if they are parallel matters, and they're not. The whole situation looks plausible, but they're completely different kinds of offenses. Indeed, there was no repentance on Absalom's part, as far as we can tell. I want you to see that there's a wisdom that is devious. And it seems to me that there's a case of that wisdom here. There's a wisdom that is not wise. 
There is a perception that does not penetrate. There is a discernment that does not discriminate. And that's why Paul prays in Philippians 1, 9 and 10. I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you may approve the things that are superior. In the debate over various moral and ethical questions in our culture today, often there is seemingly plausible, parallel kinds of argument being made. You have to be able to see through this false wisdom. You need to be able to plead with the Lord that you might see through the fallacies, the slick moves, and the plausibilities of mere earthly wisdom. The world, the flesh, And the devil will play with your mind and play with your faith, especially when you are compromised like David by your own sin and desires. Seek the Lord, for he gives us the knowledge of good and evil, not by experience, but by his word. You have to know that there is a wisdom that is devious. Now, secondly, I think we can say, uh, just like there's a wisdom that is devious, we can say that the absence of justice leads to a success that is discouraging. This is seen in verses 22 to 24, and it's seen in verses 28 to 33. There's a success that is discouraging. Think about what Absalom is facing. There was the murder that he planned of Amnon. Then he had to flee to the kingdom of Geshur, where his maternal grandfather happened to be the king. He had to flee, but he was taken care of there. He was probably pretty well off. In other words, this was not destitution. Also, Absalom had an advocate in the court. Joab wanted to see Absalom brought back. And everyone knew that if you went against Joab, then you might have some problems. Joab presses the argument, and David caves in. And Absalom comes back from exile in verse 23. But there's another problem, another obstacle which Absalom must overcome. He's excluded from the king's presence. Notice that is mentioned three times, verses 24, 28, and 32. The text pounds it in. He can go to, his, go to his house, but he's not going to see the king's face. There is no reconciliation of any sort. So, Absalom may be back, but he's unreconciled. And he wants more, of course. He's, he's been away for three years in Gesher, and then two years now in Jerusalem, It's a total of five years, and he wants to see his father's face. Unfortunately, Joab isn't returning his calls. So Absalom has Joab's barley field set on fire, and Joab shows up and finally hears what he has to say. Thus, Joab goes to the king, and Absalom, verse 33, is brought into the king. There seems to be a reconciliation of sorts, and David kisses his son after a total of five years. His fate seemed bleak when he left Israel after he had had Amnon killed. Now, look what has happened. It's like Monopoly, and Absalom just used the get-out-of-jail-free card. He has no bruises, no consequences for his actions. He got off without a hitch. And that is the success that's discouraging. When you see wicked people who seem to have a smooth way to all their desires, and it goes well for them, It's sort of like the story uh, that's behind the movie Valkyrie, if you've seen that movie. If you haven't seen the movie, it's based on a true story about an assassination attempt. In July 1944, there was a military conference where Hitler was meeting with his advisors. Someone had placed a briefcase under the table. 
There was a blazing sheet of flame, an explosion. Hitler was staggering out of the bunker, but he was alive. He had a punctured eardrum, and his one arm was temporarily paralyzed, but he was alive. The plot did not take his life. Mussolini was scheduled to arrive that day from Italy. Hitler eventually went to meet with him after he had recovered enough to go out. And this is what he said. Frankly, I regard this event as the pronouncement of divine providence. Mussolini admitted that it was a marvelous escape. And this is what Hitler said. Marvelous? It's more than that. It's God's intervention. Look at this room. Look at my uniform. When I reflect on this, I know nothing will happen to me. Clearly, it is my divine task to continue on and bring my great enterprise to completion. That success is really discouraging. Now, I'm not commenting on whether it is, uh, it's ethical or not to assassinate tyrants, but Hitler being what he was, and what he had done, and what he had perpetrated, saying that he was under the blessing of God to continue his atrocities, it's really discouraging to see. This kind of success is everywhere around us. Abortion is celebrated as a right. The family unit in our culture is completely broken down. Our politicians only get richer while they fight about policies and problems of which the root of the problem is really the sinful hearts of wicked men and women succeeding all around us. Russia moves against Ukraine while we in the West are so fat on entertainment and the random hedonism of our culture. This kind of success is a problem for our faith when we look at the world and we see it. And the slice of life we see isolated here in 2 Samuel 14 can give faith fits. Absalom comes out smooth and there is no trouble for him. These kinds of things are what produce many of the cries in the Psalms. Here's a man, Absalom, driven by hatred, guilty of murder, friendly with those in high places and with gall to force the issue, as he does in verse 32. And he gets away with it unpunished. It often seems that wicked men and women are blessed through success, apparently approved by heaven, and blissfully free of any claims of justice. You know what that's like. Their CAT scans don't show up anything bad. Leukemia doesn't kill their kids. Miscarriage doesn't devastate their wives. Downsizing doesn't eliminate their jobs. Hail doesn't ruin their crops. Conflict with management uh, doesn't prevent their promotion. Setbacks never hinder their careers. Recessions never reduce their wealth. Are they then under God's smile? Is Absalom under God's smile? Does God bless all they do and curse those he has set apart? It's the same problem we find in Psalm 73, for instance. But Psalm 73 reorients us to the faithful judge who knows the end of the wicked. Do you not perceive their end? It says you must go to worship corporately before you answer these questions of whether the wicked are under God's good pleasure. But the fact remains that in this life, there is a success for the wicked that is discouraging and disheartening to the people of God. Thirdly, I want you to see that the absence of justice leads to a style that is empty. This is seen in verses 25 to 27. It's as if the writer takes these verses and says, Look who's back in Jerusalem. The scripture says, Now in all Israel there was no one as much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. 
From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And it goes on and on, talking about the beauty of Absalom. Here is Absalom. He is just Mr. Israel. He's on advertisements, on the cover of Time magazine, and an influencer on Instagram giving uh, the routine for his hair care. His family is beautiful and blessed. And that's certainly a style, but it's an empty style. Matthew Henry, the biblical commentator who lived in the 18th century, says that there are three matters here. One, that Absalom was a handsome man. Two, that he had a very fine head of hair. And three, that his family began to be built up. However, nothing is mentioned about wisdom, virtue, piety, faith, or worship. And that's a significant omission. In fact, it's a really bad signal to see a man praised for his physical impressiveness. If you've read First and Second Samuel up to this point, then you know that it's a problem when someone is only described according to their physical perfections or impressiveness. Remember King Saul when he be, uh, became king in First Samuel. Saul was handsome. No one was more handsome. He was taller than all the people. There was none like him among all the people. Saul was the epitome of physical impressiveness and perfection. He was effective militarily, but, covenant, but covenantally he was an utter failure. Then you go to when Samuel was looking to anoint a successor to Saul among Jesse's sons. And he, says, and he sees uh, Eliab, and Samuel thinks to himself that surely he is the one because of his physical impressiveness. And he's already uncorking his oil, but the Lord says to him, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And now we come to Second Samuel 14, and we have a third instance of a man who is described solely in terms of his physical impressiveness. And it's a bad signal, because the other two situations were negative. Take comfort, friends, that the Lord is pleased by the quiet and gentle spirit. The Lord does not look kindly on wickedness. He is not fooled by devious wisdom or earthly success or fleeting style. The Lord desires a people set apart, holy unto himself. What do we value in our context that falls into the Absalom mold? What would it be like in our modern situation according to Matthew Henry's three issues? One, you have a fine, well-paying job. Two, you look beautiful and you come to church put together and dressed up. And three, you have in life what is considered outward blessings, a nice house, a yard, children. But apart from Christ, this is a pathetic ideal. It's an abysmal emptiness. It's a style that is empty. And the only real way to counter this kind of emptiness is to look to Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, the Christ in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You have to come to fullness of life in him. There is a solution to that emptiness, but he is the only solution to that fleeting emptiness. There's a style that is empty. At the end of our chapter, all seems to be resolved, but it isn't. When King David kisses Absalom, he kisses a snake. He kisses one, 
who has achieved his place not through atoning sacrifice, not through repentance, not through faith, but by a devious wisdom and a discouraging success in an empty style. King David failed to execute justice and he failed to uphold the rightful punishment for sin. And like Absalom, we have failed the law and it requires our lives as a price for our sin. We all too often seek to get right with God and man in and of ourselves, like Absalom. We give in to the wisdom of the world. We long for the status that goes along with earthly success. We crave the love of others, that they would look at us and see something beautiful. We read in Hebrews 1 about how Jesus is greater than angels. And here in this passage, the woman of Tekoa goes on and on about how David is like an angel. But we have something better. We have Jesus. The world exalts evil. In the face of this emptiness and discouragement, we look to the Father who did not spare his only one and son, his, his one and only son. We look to the Son who became sin for us. In the triune God, we see the Father who upholds justice and a Son who willingly submits to it, contrary to King David and Absalom. As we cling to Christ, we really are welcomed back into the throne as sons and daughters of the Most High King. He replaces our ugly works with a righteousness that is not our own. You see, our lives depend on the necessary justice executed against Christ on our behalf. Look forward to this great moment in Christ when you approach the throne. Look forward to being fully restored, not through sinful, empty means, but in Christ. Look to Christ, the righteous judge of all things. He is our comfort and our joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we run to things that are in our own strength. Uh, We run to a sinful pragmatism. In the face of sin, we run to the wrong things. And so, Lord, we pray that we would run to you, uh, take out our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh, Give us eyes that see and ears that hear. Let us run to you so that we can experience true comfort and true joy and true presence of God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.